0: Hey guys, welcome back to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we dive deep into stories of Asian entrepreneurs around the world.
1: Be sure to check out our book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, and check out our directory and marketplace at asianhustlenetwork.com. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave a five-star review.
0: Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals.
1: We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi everyone, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Suchin Park. Sachin is a veteran journalist who has been hosting and reporting the news for over 25 years. She has reported on ABC, NBC, Discovery Networks, Oxygen, and E. She is most known for her long career as the first Asian-American reporter for MTV News. From hosting red carpet shows to reporting on presidential elections, international relief efforts, and covering some of the biggest headlines in news, Puck has been a dedicated journalist since reporting on her first show at the age of 16. She has focused much of her work on issues involving social change. She currently co-hosts Add to Cart, a podcast about consumerism and the impact on our culture for Alaminada Media. Suchen, welcome to the show. Thanks,
0: guys. You guys can't see it, but I'm smiling from end to end. Because <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan of Sujin Park, right? And as we said in her intro, like we grew up watching her. We grew up mm. admiring her. And she's such a pioneer in the space. Without her, like, like we wouldn't have gone as far as we did. So thank you so much, Sujin.
2: Oh, that's so, so wonderful to hear. It's funny because, you know, when I was doing my job at the time, you know, there was no... Really, no internet. There certainly wasn't social media. So it felt very alone. You know, it felt kind of like, OK, I just got to get through this day, got to get through this week. So it's only later in my life now, as we are all connecting in so many different ways that I'm hearing this feedback. And it's kind of weird, you know, because it's it's such a disconnect, right? It's been so long, but I never had these conversations when I was actually in the job. And now here I am, like raising my own kids and having a totally different experience. And yet being so connected to the past in a way that I never, you you know, imagined.
0: Yeah. Those are the intangibles that you yeah. that you had on us. Right. And I'm like, kind of glad that we're here to share that back with you. Mm-hmm. And we want to hop into your story a bit because I know that this whole career path wasn't something that you were intending to be, to do right. To like be on television. So like hop us through like how this all even unfolded and what your parents thought about the path.
2: Yeah. We, I'm just curious, even with your experience either, and personally and in doing the podcast, Is it so different now? Do you think that Asian Americans feel like they can be on camera and that their parents do approve? Like, I'm just curious.
0: No, to be honest, (laughs) not at all.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it is interesting because sometimes that's what I think, you know, but... You know, but then I see so many more stories and our faces, but the wider the lens, the smaller that, you know, focus group is. So I don't know that it's that different, right, than it is now. I think that. So much has changed in just the the past five years, more than in the 30 plus years I've been doing this. But yeah, when I was starting out, like I grew up in Union City, you know, my parents, we all moved to this country from South Korea. I was five. And, you know, the options were, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, like that. That's it. You, You know, moving away from that was death. You know, death to security, death to survival, death to, you know, all of the dreams that come packed into these suitcases that when we come to this country. So, you know, it's a career that in some ways It chose me because I started so young and it was really out of the blue. I always thought I was going to be a lawyer. And when I was chosen to do this teen program show, I thought, oh, this is great. I'm 16. I'm doing this weird teen talk show on a local news channel. This is a fantastic job, but then I'll go to college and I'll be on my path. And I mean, I did this. I hustled for TV work for so many years before I could actually say, wait, I think that this is what I want to do and that I can do it because I'm not the type, I'm not a risk taker. I'm not, you know, I'm one that, that understands that I'm an, I'm an eldest sibling. So I understand that there are a lot of risks that are not my own to take. Right. So, I mean, I wasn't really until... I moved to New York. And by then I had been doing TV for 10 years. And for 10 years, I kept thinking, okay, well, this, I'm sure this is my last TV job. There's no way I'm getting something after this. Then I'll go back to law school and then I'll go back to law school. So yeah, that's kind of the long, long-winded way of saying this was definitely not my career choice.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. And you know, when you say, say, I'm going to go back and do this and that it's weird as it sounds, so I'm in my mid thirties now that that thought still occurs in the back of my head. Yeah. Like, what if I fail? I just go back to being whatever I was intending to do. Right. right. <laughs> it just I feel like sometimes we're so bounded by what our parents expectations yeah are and what they yeah. want us to be and what they want us to do like it's always in the back of your head but oh, yeah. i'm really glad that you're able to like trailblaze this new career path that's quote-unquote untraditional to yeah. our parents right and i'm kind of curious too like how did you learn your public speaking abilities i saw online that you went to james logan high school <laughs> yes and you did beach in the bay yes let's talk about that i, say, I was also a awesome you
2: were too okay yeah. so you know so but you wait, well, brian where did you grow up
0: I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley. In particular, okay. I went to Gabrielino High School. Yeah. And I think you Logan were part and, of... And I always the number one and yes. two and three or something.
2: Forensics. Like yes. For all go. of you forensics nerds. Um, and we're not talking about CSI. We're talking about speech and debate, Lincoln Douglas debate. I mean, yeah. Like, you know, it's funny. I almost never talk about this because it's so small and so random, but I would say doing that in high school was the, the only way I could have entered in this career because I just, I just faked it, you know, and when you're, when you're doing and competing in speech and debate, you're just faking it the whole time. You know, it's not like, it's not like this is a skill that we're born with, you know, speaking in, in public and being articulate and concise and having an opinion and being able to convey that. So inadvertently. I, I mean, that sort of gave me a type of training that I didn't know that I would be prepared for. And it's crazy, right? How you look back and the pieces fall into place, but they they don't, it doesn't work out that way. It's not like I went into speech and debate being like, yes, I'm going to perfect, you know, being able to speak in front of a crowd. And then that'll land me, you know, a news anchor job. And then that'll land me, you know, into New York. So, but it was a huge impact and shout out to my coach coach Lindsay, like legendary and you know he sort of saw something in a very quiet asian person i didn't do debate because that was too scary i did expository do you know what expository do you remember what expository is,
0: uh, is it oh man i don't remember the abbreviation yeah. is it the one with the whiteboard yeah So
2: I did my expository speech, which is a speech that you write and you perfect and you perform and you do this for the entire year. It's the one speech you give. Right. But like it so much goes into how you structure this. I would say it was probably like a 30 minute speech. And then you have you have props. You have like, and it sounds insane, like, why is this why are we competing in this? But anyway, so I did that and and I got pretty far. Like I think I went to state and and finally lost there. But it was just one of those things that that I think because of that, because where am my upbringing? My parents still don't speak English. You know, I mean, my parents have never used an ATM machine. You know, they, they don't they've never had a credit card. They've never, you know, been to college. Like, where was I going to get this kind of support and mentoring and experience? So I think we as immigrant kids, we sort of piece it all together, you know, ourselves, you know, it's a, especially if we want to pursue something that isn't traditional in our culture
0: yeah and that's the thing I want to highlight in this podcast too it's like every skill no matter how yeah. random you think it is yeah. right now will all come into play when you're in that position you're like yeah. draw upon every single experience yes. you can and keep pushing forward so yeah. if you guys are curious about your career or whatever I say go for it especially yeah. at a younger age it's like you never know how that that's, that's going to come back and be so useful in your life later yeah
1: yeah. Yeah. Brian still talks about his experience in speech but and I sucked till them. this day.
0: And- <laughs> <I suck. laughs>
1: Maggie's yeah. like, he oh I'm God, not I'm not speech <laughs> again. He, yeah, he has nightmares about it, but still, like, I feel like it's really helped Brian because Brian is really good at talking yeah. to people and it really is about, like, faking it, you know? Sometimes, yeah. most of the times, a lot of us don't even know what to say, but yeah. I I definitely can see, like, it's definitely helped Brian a lot and he still oh, talks I about I don't
0: fake it all the time it's intentional, okay?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes it is. oh faking it is an art. Are you kidding? I've built my whole career. i faking it. I fake it every single day. I mean, yeah, those kinds of, I mean, I don't know what you would call them soft skills. You know, so it's not math, it's not English, it's not science, right? And those are the hardcore things that our parents drill into us. But in this day and age, in this economy, in this country, it's all the soft skills, right? If you can convince someone of your idea, that your idea is better than the person next to you, it doesn't matter if you got a perfect SAT score, which, you know, it's the truth. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, there's something great about achieving academics. I wasn't, One of those kids, you know, I kind of just always was looking for the way in the other the other door. And I think that those skills, you know, they translate when you're out in the in the big world where nobody cares what kuma cum laude, you know, what you know what I mean, what a score that you got on your last exam. And those soft skills are really hard to come by in immigrant families. And I think that I go back to there was this article years ago and you guys should look it up if you haven't. Read it. I wonder if it still holds as much truth as it did when I read it. But in New York Magazine, there was an article and it was called Paper Tigers about how we as Asian Americans are tigers on paper. But that's all it is, right? Pieces of paper. At some point, we have to live off of that piece of paper, you know, to succeed and not everybody, you know, like if you're a nuclear physicist or a biologist, those skills serve you. But if they're not so clear cut, those skills in what you want to do in your life, then you've got to find those ways to figure that out.
0: Absolutely. It's about knowing your own strengths and weaknesses. And yeah. I think you're being so humble, you know, you went to Berkeley, so it's a great school.
2: <laughs> well, I got into Berkeley. I didn't graduate, oh, but yeah, okay. I got in there. And, you know, I mean, Oh, no, I studied. I got great grades. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm a perfectionist, but faked all of it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I knew how to play the game well. I was not one of those kids that cr- that like never opened a textbook. And then I suddenly aced the exam. You know, I was studying that shit for months before the quizzes. You know, I was always stressed, the most stressed person because I wanted that A. I had to have that A, but I just wasn't one of those kids that, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, we all have those friends where you're just like, oh, oh, that really, really is annoying that you can just walk in and ace this exam. And and yeah. And so for me, it was all of it. Even getting good grades was a hustle for me. It wasn't something that came, you know, like in a straight line. You know what I mean? Like I I really had to work at at what I wanted.
0: Yeah. And that really translated to your adult life too, right? Yeah. I know that you got discovered twice and let's talk about that, those experiences, like talk about your first time, like being discovered and given the opportunity to like pursue the career path. What was going through your mind? Like, I want to just reframe us what year this was. How old were you? Yeah. What was going through your mind? And like, okay. Tell you, tell your parents that you want to pursue this path.
2: Yeah. Well, I was 16. So it was probably 1991 or two. And Okay, so the to set the scene, right? You guys, the nineties, there's there's no, I mean, do we even have emails? No, I think the first time I had an email was when I went to college and I got a Berkeley EDU email, right? That was like the you got emails only because you were in school. So it was land before that. So it was the land of TV. TV was king, and there was a local news channel, ABC. So KGO TV in San Francisco in the Bay Area, they were doing a weekly teen talk show called Straight Talk and Teens, terrible name. And they wanted four real teens. Wait, was there four of us? Wait, one, two, yeah, four real teens talking about, you know, teen things. So like every Saturday morning we'd talk about, and there was a live studio audience, right? And we talk about teen pregnancy and the latest shoes and how to, you know, ace your college, you know, Application, you know what I mean. It was just like a kind of like a news magazine show, and I was chosen to be one of the kids. It, it looked like a Benetton ad. It was me, a blonde girl named Julie from Marin, uh, Louise Castro, who was Latin uh, American. I, I don't actually remember. I don't know if he was from Mexico or not, but anyway of Latin heritage. And then there was Jabali Sawicki, who was African-American. His mother was white. He actually has gone on to have also an incredible career in New York as like in education. But anyway, so it was the four of us like Truly an Esprit ad. If now I'm going to go real hardcore deep for those old folks that are listening that remember Esprit. But, and the four of us were doing that. So, so they were kind of looking for kids. And, and so that's how that started. And I remember I, there's, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what this meant. I just remembered that I showed up with my parents to the news station to sign the paperwork having no clue that they wanted me to be on camera. I knew that they wanted me somewhere in the, you know, in the production of it, but even that, like I had never seen, I've never seen anybody work in front of a camera. I don't think I had ever seen, you know, the inside of a studio. I'd never seen any of this stuff. No aspirations to be on camera. And so they really had to literally tell me, no, you're going to hold a microphone and then this camera is going to record you. And I was like, right, right. And then when they said that they were going to pay me, I think it was like 150 or $200 a show. I was like, my parents were like, sign her up. How, you know, does she hold the camera here? You know, what is she doing? The lights? Like, where does she sign up for this? So it was really a survival choice, you know, like that someone would pay me that I could make $300 a week doing what? Like talking about shoes is like. Get out of here. Like who's gonna say no to this? Like even if I fail miserably, you know, like I gotta what what are my options? <laughs> you know, like helping my parents make yogurt at the you know, salad bar. Like, what are my options? So you guys, like, I think back to it. And it like, it's so, so heartwarming to see that this endeavor was such a family effort because even getting to San Francisco, like I live in Union City. That's like, that's a whole world away, even though it's a 40 minute drive, you know? And my parents, we would all get in the minivan together. I would get there on Saturday morning. They would stay parked in the minivan in front of the station and they would be there all day. I'd come out, I'd eat something. My dad would be reading the newspaper in there and they would park in front of that station until I was done and then drive me home. I mean, it was a huge, like a village effort. Like there was, you know, like we didn't know what we were doing. And also, of course they were going to, you know, sit out there for eight to 10 hours and wait for me to get done with this, you know, weird job that I had somehow, you know, genie bottled my way into. So, you know, I think about that now, like how small, how tiny our world was. And then to sort of have that discovery land in my, in my universe was, I mean, looking back was, you know, mind blowing earth shattering and, you know, altering the, the course of my life. But then I just didn't want to get fired. You know what I mean? Like every day was just learning on the job. I remember one of my first celebrity interviews was with Ice Cube. And I accidentally called him ice pick because I was so nervous and he shut the interview down and he walked away and crying, hysterically sobbing. I was like, they're going to fire me like this is it. Like I, you know, I, I barely know what I'm doing anyway. So like every day was that was just like a fight or flight, you know, trial by error, which is great great a great education in trying to have a job on television because it's it's that you know it's like that it doesn't matter if you're doing that for a small news station or if you're on TRL like that's trial by you know fire too you know it's like my mistake with that small interview would be seen by no one but a mistake on a national you know the number one you know show for young people in The world, you know what I mean? Screwing up on there is also (laughs) fight or flight. So yeah, that's kind of how the context and how I, I see that time in my life now. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that, Sushan. I'm just kind of envisioning
1: it from your perspective and from from your lens. And I can totally see just like, it's so heartwarming hearing about your family waiting outside in the yeah. car and just waiting, you know, eight, nine yeah. hours until you come out. Yeah. And I just wanted to say like how much I appreciate that story because I feel like a lot of Asians can resonate with that. And the fact oh, yeah. that our parents, we they tend to want us to go into certain roles, like you mentioned, Mm-hmm. you know, a doctor, mm-hmm. lawyer. But mm-hmm. until the money comes in, you know, <laughs> yeah. until there's sort of money that comes in, then they're like, oh, okay. Like this makes sense. You know, I can
2: see how you can make a career out of this. Um, oh, they didn't, they didn't see it for a long time. <laughs> Trust me. I was, I was that 35 year old who my mother was like, it's not too late. You know, Mr. Lee's daughter went to dental school and she was 35. I'm like, I'm not going to law school, mom. Like I, I'm on MTV. Like, I mean, I say that jokingly, but I was like, I think I'm going to make a go of this. Like, I'm going to try this. But yeah, like until the checks come in, until all of that is real. Yeah, this is a game of survival. Like we don't have the luxury. Most of us don't have the luxury to choose what we want to do. I didn't choose to do this, you know. one point later on, I finally did choose for myself that this is the path I wanted, but we don't have the luxury of choice. So, you know, I, I always think it's so it's such a hard question to answer when someone asks, how did you end up doing this? Like, what was the path, you know? And, uh, you know, the short version is, you know, oh, yeah, I, you know, It was discovered at 16 and then I worked in local TV and then I got into MTV. That's the short version. But the true and the long version, the one that we all know as Asian Americans and as immigrants is this version, which is like hooker by crook. Like, you know what I mean? Like it is not, it's not a choice. I I never felt like I had the luxury of choice in any of my career decisions until much, much later on. And that's after my family was fed, taken care of after the security of my, you know, of my brother and my mom and my dad. And we were all like on our way to having some some sense of being okay, you know, then I could be like, okay, now I've got choices. But up until that point, it's, that's not a choice. You know, if, if the job stopped coming, I never would have pursued this, you know?
1: Yep, absolutely. And, you know, the ice pick story, I didn't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I so like, much.
2: Yeah. I, and... I think about. I mean, how crazy? Like, how offensive is that to be him to have fought so hard and like from the bay? You know what I mean? Like, I like. How could I do that? Like, I just. Yeah, no. It yes. was. It haunts me to this day. I'll sometimes wake up and be like, I spent what? Oh. <laughs> you know, you're so nervous. You know, right, right. and. And, and it,
1: it really is it a learning experience. And, and, and look how far you, know, you have come. You know, you, yeah. you have learned from that experience. And, yeah. you know, I think a lot of us can resonate with those experiences too. <laughs> just starting out early in your career, nervous yeah. about everything, wanting to perfect every little single thing. And then 10 years pass by and it's like something that you can laugh at in the end. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. love that story. So fast forward a little bit, you know, you got discovered after moving to New York, after being hired as a host for the show Trackers and someone from MTV had spotted you. And soon you were the first Asian face of MTV. You were the first, you were MTV's first Asian American anchor slash reporter. I'd love to hear about that experience and, you know, what that experience was like when they approached you, when they discovered you. And did you ever feel the weight of being the only Asian in the room when you were hired at MTV?
2: Let's see. I mean, you know, the, by that point I had been, you know, doing TV for I don't know, 10, 10 plus years. And so the job itself was really easy for me. You know, like I understood what it was, you know, I, I knew how to do it very well. And okay, I'm just going to be super honest because I can be, I'm with my family. I mean, I didn't have MTV growing up. Like we didn't, are you kidding? My parents are born again Baptists, but also they're freaking cheap. Like we are not going to pay for TV. So I didn't really grow up with the context of pop culture and I didn't grow up with the context of music. And so, and I say that because I think when this opportunity at MTV came, I thought it was like, like a really, really great stepping stone into becoming the next Connie Chan. You know, like I would go from here, like MTV was like college news and then I would graduate to national news and that was grad school, you know, and then and then I would be off, you know, like I would be, you know, co-anchoring, you know what I mean? NBC Nightly News or whatever. And so to me, it wasn't like MTV, MTV. I And, and I think that that really helped because I didn't go into it with that expectation or that like fandom That sometimes can really trip you up, you know, when you're doing this job and throughout my career there, while I was so lucky to meet all these celebrities and interview, you know, it's like for me, there was such a distance that I could really rely on, you know, like I was a little bit older, you know, at the time that I was there, it was like the era of Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake and boy bands. And, you know, that wasn't my music, you know, and MTV That pop culture, that's not what I grew up. So for me, it was a real exercise in just doing the work. Like it wasn't about, I didn't feel like I had arrived at a party that I always wanted an invite to. So the job at MTV came in the most traditional way, right? So I moved to New York when Oxygen first launched with Oprah Winfrey. its I know it's very different now, but then it was gonna be a profoundly changing network just for women. And I was hosting a talk show, And then when that ended, a lot of the producers on my show all came from MTV, so they all went back to MTV, and I had become friends with all the producers. And so when the spot came up, Serena Aultchul was leaving. They were like, "Oh, they want a female voice." I don't know that they necessarily were looking for a female of color. I don't. I I wouldn't give them that much credit. And so I auditioned, and I got the job, and that was that. And in terms of like, you know, in terms of feeling. I sort of alluded to this in the beginning of the interview. You know, it was a very isolating experience, you know? I mean, how many how many people can say that, you know, they, their everyday job is to walk in onto a a set called TRL and, you know, interview Gwen Stefani and and Diddy and, you know, do the VMAs and then, you know, travel the world to cover news. I mean, it's, it's like a dream, you know. So in that way, it's very isolating. But in terms of my Asian American identity, I always had like a sense of it because I grew up in the Bay Area where I mean, I think there were three white kids in my school. We were all Asian or of color, you know, like I never felt like I was in the minority until I left home. So I think I had like Bay Area kids have a different sense of identity, I think, than even like when I moved to Los Angeles or New York, even New York was it's like a totally different Asian vibe to me, you know, than when I grew up. With So I always had that sense, but I was always very reluctant to identify myself as an Asian American in my work because I didn't want people to think, oh, that's all she that's all she can do. Right. And that framework really held me back from, I think, discovering my own community, but also discovering like what this identity even means to me. And this is something that's come much later in my life. And on top of it, like I told you, just the basics of it. TV is a closed circuit medium. Social media in the digital age is a completely open network. You know, you go on TV, I do my thing and then I go back home. I don't hear one word from an audience member. I don't hear one word from anyone that hated it or loved it. So I think that there's a beauty in it because you can kind of just do your job and there you don't have trolls, but there's also a real sense of isolation because you have no idea that there are people that like your work or, you know, care about what you're doing it's so different so so different than than how it is now
0: wow i mean thank you so much for sharing those experiences and the isolation part too i think that's something that not only resonates with entrepreneurs but like people pursuing like this pioneer path that never has been that's never been done before what i'm curious about is like whenever you feel really isolated how do you remind yourself that you have a family and you have a community behind you because as you said right you're basically doing your job you don't you don't have any feedback So how do you, how do you remind yourself that you're not in this alone? And I want to hear more about like the times where you felt really sad, right? And you felt like a lot of self-doubt because honestly, when we see you on TV, like we sound so confident, like we love your tone of voice and the way you present everything, but deep inside, we're still human beings. And I feel like people forget that. I want to hear more about that side.
2: Yeah. I mean you know, how you find your sense of community when you feel isolated. So how how you find your sense of community or your sense of identity when you don't see it around you is virtually impossible, which is why representation matters, why visibility matters, because you can't, I mean, unless you're some sort of sorcerer, there are people out there that are truly, truly made of different stuff. Like how do you how do you imagine something that doesn't exist? It's so what what does that even mean? You know, it's like a it's like a math equation that is too big and too elusive for most of us to figure out. So that's number 1. is is that I had no sense of my identity. You know, I could only do it because I, I had grown up where I'd grown up. I'd gone to Berkeley. I had taken, you know, I was on my way to getting a minor in ethnic studies. You know, so all of that, I came with all of that, that academic knowledge of what it meant to be a person of color. I would say the first time I really saw myself and I saw like you know how like sometimes you have those experiences where you're like whoa this is like a matrix moment you know what I mean I can take the red pill or I can take the blue pill like this is going to alter something and you know you and you know it you don't know how big it is in that moment but you got you have that gut feeling where you're like shit this is a fork in the road and one of those forks in the road was when better look tomorrow came out and I went to Sundance and I went to Sundance every year to cover films it was the first time I'd ever seen an Asian director the first time I'd ever seen an Asian cast. And when I sat in that theater and I watched this movie play with an all Asian American cast, nobody had accents. Nobody was the butt of a joke. It just again, we talk about the realization that I was missing something that I had no idea was even there. It wasn't until I saw it that I was like, wow this is such a hole that I never even knew. And it was so mind blowing. And so that's when I say, you know, it's impossible. How would I have had that experience had I not seen it in front of me? So, so anyway, so from that experience, I was like, I'm in, how do I get this movie out there? Like, what can I do? And so that was my real first experience in, in trying to push my professional career to further, the stories of Asian Americans, you know, that was when I first started to realize like, oh no, this is the space I want to live in. Like, this is where I feel most alive. Like, I don't have to pretend here. I feel like vomiting and screaming and dancing all at once. Like, this is the only space I want to live in. And so, and so that kind of was a place. And and I think that You know, the sadness of, you know, the isolating part of this experience. On one hand, you have this thing where you're like, you have the best job in the world. Like you have no right to not be happy. You have no right to not be grateful. You have no right to ask for more. You have the golden ticket, the Willy Wonka ticket that one in a million. And so there's that. Right. And then there's the aspect of it where I'm like, yeah, I'm not fulfilled. I'm not happy. Every day feels like a battleground every day. Every moment on the air feels like I have to fight for it, you know, and and so that really is a real tough place to live because it's isolating. Because who are you going to tell that to? Who's listening to that? And then also, like, you don't know how to bridge that gap. You know, between like, I should be so thankful, and yet I'm so angry that these experiences are happening to me. So I think living in that space was one of the reasons why I sort of took a step back from being on camera, you know, after doing it for so many decades. I just was like, yeah, I'm not willing to to do this anymore, to put myself in this kind of soul crushing equation. And so I have to find a different way to make a living and different way to tell stories and different ways to move my community forward. And there are so many different ways now that I'm, I'm lucky to have that, but you know, that was a really tough time. And, and I was, 25, like I spent my 20s and 30s. Those are miserable years. You guys, it gets better. Those are miserable years. You're still trying to figure yourself out. You're trying to date. You're trying to, you know, I mean, everything feels so big. Like every decision is so weighted. You know, now I'm like, I have the luxury of like making decisions and nothing feels like a survival decision, you know, but that's on top of all of that. And the career thing, I think I was just so, so unhappy.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that, Sushin. And I'm so glad that you were able to find other ways, you know, to get out of that current situation because some people never really find those other ways, right? And they, they, like you mentioned, they're in between, there's like this fine line of like, I should be grateful for what I have. I should be grateful that I didn't have to suffer as much as my parents did. I should be grateful Mm -hmm. that I have this job. Right. Right. But at the same time, There's so many nuances. There's so many complications and difficulties with what we currently have that a lot of people outside don't see those hardships, don't see those struggles. Right. And so we're constantly trying to find that balance of like, I
2: should be happy, but I'm not. Yeah. You know, there's funny, I had this conversation recently with someone who was asking this question. And I think it matters. You know, he was was white and not from our similar backgrounds. And he kind of asked this question in a different way. But my answer to it was, and I don't know if he really understood it the way that we're going to understand it, which is that for me, my whole career was that I'm so lucky to be here that like, I better be a really fun person. I better be a really smiley person. I better be really personable. I better be really smart. I better be really articulate, you know? And the minute I voice dissatisfaction or anger or sadness, oh yeah, no, that's not what the invitation said you know that's not yeah we're not that's not what you're here for and so that framework is was my entire career and it isn't until you know pretty recently or you know later in life that i could be like no i'm fucking pissed and i'm really annoyed and i don't care what this sounds like and i still belong here Like, I don't want your invitation, like keep it. And so to say that we're all here in the ugliness of it, especially as Asian Americans and still welcome, you know, that's the that's the groundwork that we're laying here with the storytelling and the sharing like this has to happen first before there's any sort of significant movement in politics or policy or in the way that the world moves. We have to be able to own all aspects of our identity and ourselves as full, full beings and still have a seat at the table, that I don't have to behave to be here. And that's the, that's the agreement, the implicit agreement that I think so many of us make is, is that, wow, I finally made it to this table. I better behave. Otherwise, you know, I'm not welcome. And that's the truth. And I don't care if the person that handed out the invitation says, no, that's not how it is. That's not how I am. That's, that's, this is the truth. We know it. We all know exactly the, the, the deal that we made. And so it's about laying the foundation for a different, totally different conversation.
1: Absolutely. And I feel like that goes back to your original point of, you know, one, taking the seat at the table and also building representation, making sure that we are properly represented. And I feel like there's an analogy You know how a lot of people say that when you have a dream and you think of people in your dream or you dream about certain people, everyone in your dream represents someone who you've met or seen in real life. Right. Because you can't envision something that you've never seen before. So these are all people that you've met. They are not new people that you just come up with. Mm -hmm. So the fact that representation is so important goes yeah. back to like we have to see it on screen we have yes. to actually be able to see it for right. us to envision ourselves being in that position or else it's it's impossible yeah it's impossible for us to come up with that idea like I can do that right yeah. because you know I can do that because I can see it happen mm-hmm. right and that's the only possible way so I yeah. just wanted to, to thank you for bringing that up yeah
0: yeah i mean i i do yeah i do agree with that and you uh, know again a lot more credit to you now that we know more of your backstory that you know you put yourself in the pioneer position for all of us to succeed mm-hmm. i think as you said earlier in the podcast like without you being that position like, i don't think any of us would would even think this is possible mm. right
2: oh my god that's crazy Isn't that crazy <laughs> but that's yeah. it's not crazy to think about that like it just takes one person to do a freaking three minute hit on TRL <laughs> alter the court. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you talk, like if anyone says that, that we're overstating something, we we can't, we can't overstate this. Like that small, those small moments that I was able to be on TV at that time when that wasn't possible to a lot of people mattered. And I mean, God, imagine imagine if we had the menu that we have offered today when we were growing up like i don't know who any of us would be and so i just yeah it is it's it's pretty crazy and i think that you know i shared the story you know of something that had happened to me at MTV years ago and you know and i i hadn't shared that story before in some ways because I just I knew enough to know that like my time there was so was such a like point of reference for so many Asian Americans that I didn't want to like I didn't want to taint that. You know what I mean? Like I didn't want to take that away from someone who was like, but you you were this and it was that because it was all those things. But it was also a lot of really negative, dark things that were happening. And so I it's interesting because I so instinctually feel that now, though, that we can hold all of that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't have to be so precious because we're all, we're all moving the story forward now. You know, we don't have to rely on one poor kid, you know, to do, to do the work for us. Now there's so many of us that I feel like, oh, well, let me tell you the nuanced version of the story, you know? And and I love that, that there was the celebratory version of that story, because that is also part of my story. But there's also this part and and now it's equally as important and valued. And also it mat- that matters too, you know? So...
0: Yeah, I'm glad you're, you're able to share both sides of the story. And I, yeah. I think that we're also in a generation where we are aware of how racist <laughs> this world really is. And it's like, Oh, now we're putting two to two, two and two together. It's not as yeah. rosy or black and white or whatever it is back when yeah. we were younger, right? Now it's like, yeah. Oh, like everyone's going through their struggle. And that's the one thing we really <laughs> want to highlight in our community too is that we're all human beings. And no matter how high your idols you think they are end of the day it's like you know we want to hear each other's story because that's how we connect and resonate mm-hmm. and as you already know like you know the asian community i personally feel like it still has a long way to go in terms mm-hmm. of like unifying ourselves and, and seeing yourself as as one one family essentially we're pushing things forward we're still very very early sta- early stages but you're yeah. definitely one of the pioneers so thank you for that
1: yeah, thank you so much, Chuchun. So you did culturally groundbreaking content at MTV with shows like My Life Translated, which is a documentary series of you following yeah. the lives of people juggling two different cultures. Yes. One of them being, you know, the American culture and the other mm-hmm. one being the culture of their families. Yeah, right? yeah. I want to know how much of that has translated into your book, My Life, Growing oh. Up Asian in America. And, you know, tell us a little bit about your book and how those two, you know, the documentary
0: series and the book, kind of relate to each I, other. I read the book, so <laughs> I, I love your your introductions. Oh, the good. book And <laughs> <to> everyone else's <laughs> stories is awesome. So, it oh out, my guys. god,
2: yes this this book that I just wrote the introduction to the book. It's a collection of essays called My Life Growing Up Asian in America, and they're all really personal. They're from different. Parts of the Asian community, you know, queer, non-binary, you know, all, even the minorities in the Asian community. You know, like we have to remember that even with on, in our community, it's so fractured, right? There are there are those in our community that suffer so much more than than others, even within the Asian American population. So there's that, and you know, they're artists, they're writers, they're political activists, they're television writers. I mean, there are so many different voices they were able to put together, and this book is just like, I told the editor, you know, I wrote my piece and I hadn't read any of the other stories. And as the stories finally came in and I was reading through it, I was like, this is going to take me a while to get through because I have to like get up like every few minutes because either like I'm emotionally even talking about it. either I'm like crying or I'm so mad that I have to like take a walk, you know? So... It's so raw, this book. Like, I I really didn't know what it was going to be. You know, you just you ask all these people to turn in to ask, you know, to answer this question, like, what does it mean to grow up, you know, Asian in America? And the variety of answers is so incredible. But also the through line, you know, that we are even in our fractured state. I think this like this version of Asian American, this identity that we're right now currently in this moment in time developing and, and putting together, there is a common thread. And so you also see that in the book. So I'm super proud of it, but also, you know, there was, there was faith, you know, I didn't know that, you know, I didn't know what stories we're going to get. So I'm so excited. I was so relieved. I was like, Oh my God, these stories are so good. And then, yeah, I mean, I did this, I did this documentary series guy. I'm trying to think even now, if there tell because I don't watch a lot of TV so like if are there other reality type of documentary series where it's solely centered on the immigrant experience like I, I think there are right there have to be but I can't in my mind <laughs> there has to be but yeah it's not coming to my mind it's like, not coming to are, my mind like, there aren't any big ones it's like maybe there's like the, the reality shows but that's I think that that's a little bit different you know because this was more of a docu series and So anyway, so this show that we had conceived of was why what I wanted to do was tell the story of all of the kids that I knew that came from immigrant families that led these double lives. Right. So outside of the house, it's like America 2005. And inside, it's like Vietnam, 1964, you know, like those two lives that we all lead. And I wanted to tell that, that story and I wanted to tell it through the lens of like specific American experiences. So like college, prom, dating, you know, body image, you know, like I didn't want to tell it through like nothing that was anything with that, but I didn't want to be like, here's my stinky lunch. Like that's not the story I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell like, I want to go to prom but this is how you go to prom when your parents absolutely forbid and would never imagine you being alone in the dark with a bunch of boys. Like this is, this is my story. So it was, you know, It was groundbreaking for me because it was the first time that I had turned the camera on myself in that way because the cameras came home with me as well. And so, uh, you know, as I was talking about body image, you know, I would go home and I had been considering getting double eyelid surgery. I never thought that I would not get it. You know, and it just was a was a given as soon as I had the time and the money to do it as an Asian person. Like that's what you do, you know. And so we, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about what that meant in, to me, you know, in real time. And then I wanted to talk to a young woman who was going through the surgery and what that meant to her. And so stuff like that. Like I really wanted to be personal. And again, it was one of those like fork in the roads. You know, where I just was like, oh, this is the kind of stuff that I love doing. You know, like maybe I don't belong behind a news desk. Like, oh, this is going to be a problem. You know, like I'm not sure that I want to read the news on a teleprompter you know, after having this like full meal, like I, I just, I couldn't do it. So, you know, and I think from there, I'm I'm always looking for ways to tell our stories in that way and to make what's happening in the world, very personal. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, that thread. I I didn't think about that, Maggie, (laughs) when I didn't come up with the title of this book. So it's just funny. I hadn't even thought about that until you brought it up. What big threads and they're both you know produced by MTV. This is a book that MTV is doing with Cape. And so it's just as it's weird. It is full circle.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with everything you said. Right. And you know, just one one or two things I want to point out. One, the book is extremely raw and yeah. the stories are extremely powerful. So be warned that you might yeah. <laughs> be very impacted by the stories. <laughs>
2: right, Ryan. I was not expecting that. There was yeah. there's so much like pain yeah. and rage and yeah. depth and it is raw. Like these not, I'm not a writer. Like I don't identify as a writer. Like most of the people that contributed are not writers. You know what I mean? So they just kind of tell it like it is. It is. Yeah. It, I'm really, really excited for
0: this book. I like the artwork inside the book too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Shout it's out great. to all the writers in, in yeah. that collection. And the other thing I want to point out is, you know, Maggie and I both have single eyelids. So you guys can't see the podcast. <laughs> 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 Never thought that was a problem. <laughs> mono lids. Oh no. I,
1: I always wanted, you know, the <laughs> eyelid surgery. I <laughs> think it's what a lot of Asian girls kind
2: of think about. Most, 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 yeah. Most. I can't, I can't even imagine that, that not being, a think, you know, I went on when I did that particular episode I went on the Oprah Winfrey show did you guys know this oh my god I went on the Oprah Winfrey show to talk about double eyelid surgery in the Asian community talk about like Twilight Zone And I'm sitting in front of Oprah Winfrey and I'm just like out of body experience. And she was like, you're doing what? I was like, yeah, you know, like, you know, like, yeah, most Asians uh, get this double eyelid surgery because and she's looking at me like I'm speaking tongues. You know, she's like, huh? Like what? So much so. And I'm so out of body because I'm sitting in front of Oprah Winfrey that I'm like, wait, maybe it's just me. I'm like, shit. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going on the biggest show in the world to talk about an experience that nobody is having. And it's all a figment of my imagination. And so they had brought in, in that show, they had, because Oprah Winfrey was doing at that time, it was like like a month long thing on like body image. or It was a big campaign in the show. And they had brought all these young high school girls to sit in the audience, you know? And I just remember like, like that the blood draining from my body being like oh my god like i like just freezing and looking out into the audience there was this asian high schooler i can still see her like bangs little bob and she's like you know what i mean nodding so furious like her hair is just like she's nodding so hard and i tell you that girl saved my life i looked at her and i was like oh god thank you i needed that this is not a figment of my imagination. She like couldn't nod hard enough. Like her energy was like, yes, you got this. I know exactly what you're talking about. Keep going. Because I'm sure she saw that like the fear in my eyes, because as I was saying it, it did sound crazy. You know, I was like, well, it's just a two millimeter of an incision. I'm like, what? Is happening. So, you know, talk about community, man. Like, where is that girl? She saved my life. She saved my career. Oh my gosh. Hopefully she hears this podcast. And she's like, that was me. She's like, wait a minute. I was at the Oprah Winfrey show in high school. (laughs)
0: She's probably an Asian hustle network. We'll find her.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. She's no, she's ruling the world. Like oh she's like, God. she's like, Oh, I got you. I know what you're talking <laughs> about. Keep going. You can do this. And anyway, I just, I just think about how funny, how funny that is. Right. Like how that. symbolic yeah. that moment is in all of our lives. Community. I mean, it definitely
1: is not a figment of your imagination. Yeah. Double eyelid surgery is so big in Asian I know community. And I mean, I'm here to validate, you know, what yeah. your, your opinions and thoughts about it too. I, no. I thought about it every day. My sister, she would be too scared to go through surgery. So she would put like the tape on her yeah. eyelid every single that. night for like yeah.
2: six months. And somehow magically she got double eyelids without yeah. surgery. So oh, yeah, we hear, we hear about those urban legends. And so yeah. we put tape on our eyelids I did that for 10 years, you know, without fail. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. It it really, it really is like in our community, there's so many of these things that I don't know if they're secrets, you know what I mean? I I just Mm -hmm. think that they're not publicized on Oprah. And And so when you go on there and she's looking at you, like you're, you know, you're crazy. You're like, Oh wait, maybe, you know, you start to doubt yourself, but yeah, of course, like Asian eyelid surgery. Like that's like The oldest trick in the book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Love it. So, so Sushin, we have one last question for you. And that is, I guess it's like a two-part question. I do want to, we do want to know about your Add to Cart podcast. And
2: the second part is, we would just love to know, you know, what's next for you. Yeah. So I started in the pandemic with my co-host, Kula Vlaisak, another... Asian American Legend, a podcast. It's called Add to Cart. And Kulop and I had met doing work for the AAPI community within the Time's Up network. So we have like an affinity group where it's all AAPI women in entertainment. And so, you know, we've done fundraisers and, you know, it was a lot of like you know, political things and socially minded things. And we met there and she had been doing podcasts for a while and she was like, let's do a podcast. And so of course we were like, okay, so we should do it on Asian American identity. We should do it about politics. And I was like, actually like, let me just be real. I do not want to do that. Like I do that on every aspect of my life. Like if I'm going to do a podcast, like I just want to have fun. And so we came up with this concept of that. So the podcast is about all the things that we buy and buy into and then what it says about who we are. So every week we sit down and we reveal to each other on the show what we bought that week and then what it says about who we are, right? And man, it's been such a crazy journey because we started in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Right. The elections, the rise in in AAPI hate crimes, you know, shootings in Atlanta, black lives. I mean, like so many things were happening when we were launching this. And so the show really straddles, you know, all the fluffy stuff that we talk about, you know, serums and socks but we talk about our experience being Asian Americans in this time right now. And so it's, it's both. And I don't know, it works. And it works because and people are like, how do you guys manage to talk about Asian rage, but also, you know, you know, batteries. And I'm like, yeah, because we're human. Like when you sit down to a dinner table with your friends, like what do you talk about? Like you talk about everything. You talk about all the stuff that brings you joy and the stuff that like is killing you at night, you know, like it's really simple. Like you just, are yourself, and so it's been great, and it's such a departure from what I have done in the past because I'm not the subject of of my career. You know, like I like to ask the questions and answering questions about myself and revealing things about myself It's not my comfort zone. So I have no idea how long this podcast will last. For now, it's good. And then in terms of what's next, I don't know. I mean, even before the podcast, I was just like, I'm not sure what I want to do, but you know, like auditioning for talk shows. You know what I mean? Like I just couldn't do it anymore. And and then this podcast happened. And, and so I'm not sure. Like, I think that there's maybe a business here. I think that I'm going to do this until it, you know, it just does. It feels stale. But right now it feels really electric every time I sit down. And then the future is is, I don't know. You know, I was talking to someone and they were asking me about my career. And I was like, but I don't have a career. You know, like that's how I see it. You know what I mean? Like my career ended when I said no to being a news anchor, you know, for national network like this. The day I said, like, no, thank you. This isn't the job I want. After all, I like have not had a career. So I don't know where the next thing is. I'm open and I have the luxury in my life now that, you know, I can choose. And so that's not I say that because I know that there are a lot of people that don't have that luxury yet, either by circumstance or age. You know what I mean? Like you got to put in the time right to sometimes get here, but sometimes not. I don't know. So I don't know. I, I I'm not sure what what it holds, but I know for sure the center of it will always be the Asian American voice. And whatever happens around that is inconsequential. Like I don't like it doesn't matter. Like that's all I care about.
1: I just wanted to thank you for your transparency, your positivity, and the fact that, you know, it's not your comfort zone to be asked questions, (laughs) but you're still on our podcast. Just wanted to thank you so much for that.
2: Well, I mean, I can't say no to my Asian peoples, my Asian, my Asian brothers and sisters. I'll never say no.
1: Oh, Oh. thank you so much, Suchin. Always.
2: Thank you, guys.
1: Of course. Where can our listeners find out more about you, Suchin?
2: So our podcast is at Add to Cart Pod on Instagram. And then I'm at Sujimpak on Instagram and I guess on Twitter, although I don't you know, I don't do Twitter very much. But yeah, that's where that's where I am. And I'm I'm on there a lot. So come find me.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Sujin, for being on our podcast. We loved every minute of it. And again, you're such a legend icon. Thank you so much again for being on podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you guys. Thank you.
0: Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show.
1: We would like to get to the top ten on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned.
0: Thank you guys so much.